If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. As we continue to swelter in the current summer temperatures, we bring to you the final episode of our Hot and Bothered series. Having heard Piers Corbyn's denial of man-made climate change and Rupert Reid's talk on the tyranny of evidence in a post-truth world, it is time to turn up the heat with Green Party leader Natalie Bennett as she envisions a radical new future for the UK. Stay tuned as she discusses whether the dogma of development has left a society divided and created a planet that is too hot to handle. We're still collectively using the resources of three planets every year. But we only have one planet. And we have to get within the limits of that planet very, very soon. We can't say, I don't believe, to the whole of Britain, right, you're using three planets, everybody has to cut back. Those people who are struggling to feed themselves are struggling to heat their homes. They can't cut back. They actually need more. Of course, if we start to look at this on a global scale, there's huge numbers of people who need a lot more resource use, a lot more access to economic resources. So what we have to do is recognise that we have to have a massive redistribution. What I want to do is also talk positives. What does our society, a green economy, look like? One of the things that we don't do is measure our progress by GDP, gross domestic product. Uh, The really funny, in a sad way, fact is that the people who invented GDP, who created the measures for it, said, do not use this as a measure of national progress. This is a lousy measure of national progress. And what have we been doing ever since? Using it as a measure of national progress. Now, there's lots of um, examples of this um, to illustrate just how useless GDP is. There's the more obvious environmental one. You go out and cut down a forest and we don't put any value on the existence of that forest, despite the fact that it might be you know, a wonderful resource ecologically, it might be a wonderful resource humanly for the people who walk, walk their dogs through it from the nearby town. You cut down the forest, and that's good for GDP. You're not counting what you've lost. And so what we need to do is have a society that actually values the real value of what you're achieving. Uh, in, our, in our Green Party manifesto, we talked about adjusted national product that would attempt to measure all of those things that we don't currently measure. But actually, in a way, what I'd like to do is really get away from the whole growth-degrowth argument because I think it's a bit sterile. It's really quite obvious when you think about it. What we need to do is do lots of things that should be done that aren't at the moment. 
800,000 people over the age of 65 need social care, need help with things like getting out of bed in the morning, feeding themselves, bathing themselves. 800,000 people need it and they're not getting it. And a green economy means investing in the social care that provides for that. And that's really what we've got to think about. What is the economy for? The economy is to deliver a decent life for everyone. And that's simply what the economy isn't doing at the moment. Then there's the more obvious opportunities in terms of economic opportunities, business opportunities. Renewable energy. It's an absolute no-brainer if you think about this in international comparative terms. We've seen the uh, greenest government ever. And even before when we had a Labour government who did some good things, talked some good things, but didn't really set up the policy framework we needed. After all of that, in Britain now, if you look at a European league table of 27 countries, we are ahead of Malta, Luxembourg and the Netherlands when it comes to the percentage of energy that comes from renewables. It's not a very grand total. We get about 5% of our energy from renewables. Sweden gets more than 50%. And if you think about the economic opportunities that we're missing, the opportunities for community-owned energy, of people coming together, investing in their own community-owned energy, really makes things work, make, makes a whole better community for everybody. What we need to do in terms of the state of green economy is do the things we should be doing. Investing in health, investing in social care, investing in public transport. We need a different kind of economy, an economy that works for the common good, that doesn't just work for the profits of the few. So what does that actually look like? Well, one of the things that really is core is the structure of it. Not a few big multinational companies dominating markets. I had a lot of people tweeting at me, I think it was yesterday, the French passed a law making it illegal for supermarkets to destroy edible food. And people are saying, shouldn't we do this? It's not a bad idea in principle, but let's, let's stop a situation where we've wasting, got so much food to waste in the first place. The whole model of supermarket food distribution that's based on massive amounts of waste. That's not going to deal with the waste that's left in the field because the supermarket told the farmer they had to supply this amount of, amount of tonnes of their product, but we might only take half of it. But you've got to have it ready in case or otherwise you'll face big financial penalties. And of course, it doesn't deal with the fact that supermarkets are pretty well built on minimum wage, zero hours contracts. One of the things that there's been very little focus on, but uh, Asda and Morrison's in particular, they're getting rid of all their managers they're just going to run things from head office and entire stores will be run by staff on minimum wage or within pennies of minimum wage. What does that do to a town where I'm sure there's some people here who've been in, who live in towns and even small cities where the council says, great, we're going to rebuild the economy, we're going to get a supermarket. That means you're going to get a whole series of minimum wage, zero hours contracts, jobs, and that's what you think is the centre of your town. So what we need instead is an economy built around small businesses, cooperatives, a local economy in which money goes round and round. And if we think about what that actually means, you think about spending a pound on buying a bag of apples. If you do that in a local greengrocer, if you're lucky enough to still have such a thing, if we're really lucky, maybe she's bought them from an orchard down the road, that might be a bit unrealistic these days, but she will at least employ a local accountant to do her books. 
She'll employ a local solicitor when she needs a lease sorted out. She'll employ a local sign writer when she needs a new sign for the shop. She'll employ a local carpenter when she needs some new shelves. The figures show that about 50p of that pound you've spent on the bag of apples stays in the town. Contrast that to the situation of spending that pound in a supermarket. And something less than 1p in the pound is going to stay in town. You probably buy that one pound bag of apples through a self-service till that's got one staff member for six tills. No money stays in the town. There's no jobs for accountants, solicitors, no jobs for sign writers, no jobs for carpenters. There's no local economy left. That's the kind of model that we've been racing towards. And we can see that it's failed, it's not working, and we need something different. And so what we need to do, what a green economy looks like, is building up to growing food, much more food locally. And if you think about it, the, uh, the ring of market gardens that used to be around towns and cities, what we really need to do is restore so much of that local food. Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking about autarky or anything like that. I like my morning cup of coffee. I'm not sure that I can actually cope without my morning cup of coffee. We really don't ever want to be growing coffee in Britain because, boy, climate change has got so far out of control by that point. We don't want to go there. But the bulk of what we eat should be produced locally. Think about the boots on your feet, the clothes on your back. You've got to try really hard now to get them made locally. Although there's an interesting ha thing happening because if you think about globalisation and what globalisation has meant, what it's been built on, the whole process of globalisation has been built on extremely low wages in the third world, the developing world, particularly China. And yet Chinese factory wages are now up to the level of some of the poorer areas of the US. It was built on cheap fossil fuels. Although we've seen a dive in the price of fossil fuels recently, I don't think anyone really thinks that's going to continue for very long. So it was built on shipping things all around the world. And it was built on the assumption through a whole lot of um, genius peoples with, with MBAs uh, that you could have a complex global just-in-time supply chain where hundreds of pieces all got brought together in one place and shipped off to where it was needed and nothing would ever go wrong. One of the things that we saw, there was some, a few years back, some big floods in Thailand and some car production nearly got utterly destroyed because a couple of small component factories went down with the floods. So globalisation, and one of the things that you'll get told is, oh, we have to have this big globalised world and we can't make things here anymore. But that was built on a particular period in economic history that's now coming to an end. Wages, happily, in most of the developing world have been going up. After the dreadful Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh, when so many garment workers were killed, lots of the big garment companies decided that made in Bangladesh on your label wasn't such a great thing anymore. And they went hunting around the world trying to find other places. But they've pretty well run out of places to run to. They haven't got cheap places with infrastructure to go to. And so one of the interesting things is I said that you've got to try pretty hard to have locally made clothes. But uh, this comes from the FT. Apparently, if you're, if you're a woman and your jacket costs between about £120 and about £250, there's a good chance it will have been made in Britain. Because at that point, at those price points, the economics of it works. And that's happened. It's known as reshoring, the opposite of offshoring. Things actually coming back to being made here. That's happened actually despite the government rather than because of the government. So just think about what you could start to do if you made that policy. Bringing manufacturing back to Britain. Bringing all of those business opportunities back here to Britain. So I've thrown 
a few ideas about what green growth, what a green economy looks like out there. A couple more things just to, to put into the mix, really, is to think about one of the green policies that got quite a bit of attention in the, in the last election was citizens' income or universal basic income. I think this is one of the foundations of a new green economy because what it means is that nobody needs to fear having nothing. So if you're, say, an artist who wants to set up your life as an artist, you can really have a go at it while you've got that foundation of security there. If you want to set up a small business, you can do that without thinking, I'm going to be left with absolutely nothing. It also means that you're not trapped, as so many people in benefits are now, with the situation that if you're on job seekers and you earn five pounds, you're supposed to declare that and you start to lose benefits. And that loss lasts for weeks. And you know, you declare it and are honest, before you know it, you'll be at the payday lender, totally stuck. So it removes those benefit traps. What you do is you just recover it from people who are wealthier from the taxation system. So yes, it does mean multi-millionaires get it, but they're no richer as a result, I promise. Just one other thing that I think is worth thinking about in terms of offering people hope, because one of the things we've really got at the moment is people are feeling that there isn't hope out there. There's a really interesting long-running survey that asks people, do you think that your children and grandchildren will have a better life than you've had? And that is becoming increasingly negative at great speed. And that, I think, is a reflection of the fact that the public, generally people get in their gut the economy's gone wrong, our society's gone wrong, and it really has to change. What perhaps they haven't quite worked out in their head is how do we go, what direction do we take, but we need to offer people hope. I'm suggesting that hope of security, the hope of opportunity, but also the hope of making progress in different kind of ways. And one of the things that I think really needs to deserve a lot more exploration is considering how we might reduce working hours. And not just reduce working hours a bit, but reduce working hours radically. They've actually looked at the idea of eventually, over a long period of time, getting to a standard 21-hour working week, three-day working week, more or less. You know, it sounds very radical when you say it, but think about if instead of chasing more stuff in our life, more increase in GDP, the traditional growth, if, say, every year you were to think about cutting the standard working week by 15 minutes, every four years... Everybody gets an extra hour of life every week to do with whatever it is that you want to do with, whether it's play in the garden, whether it's take the grandchildren out for the day, whether it, whatever it is. We can offer people a chance of progress, a chance of a society that really starts to look very different to what it does today. That surely is what we have to do. We are a profoundly unhealthy society. We're a stressed society. We're a atomized, fragmented, unhappy society, that has to change. And where we are now isn't stable. It's going to change. Let's make it change in the right direction. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast, which is brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Time to chill after a melting pot of green economics. Which side of the debate did you fall? Will renewable energy and a return to local economy be enough to cool down our planet? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our time.